All right. I uh, actually forgot my notes, so if somebody in the back could grab my my laptop, it's folded down right there. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have like I said, we're gonna have an awesome sermon series this summer. We're doing a three part series, and it's gonna be called Transfigured, and we're gonna be looking at the power of discipleship. You know, I really wanted to when I, when I was thinking about what to do as a sermon series, I wanted to do. I wanted to focus on discipleship. That's something that is near and dear to our hearts and outposts. I don't think we can ever talk too much about it. Um, the, the man who discipled me, Jake Leffler, if you ever get around him. How many went to Russia that are here tonight? Yeah, that's amazing. So you guys got to hang out with the guy who discipled me because he's currently serving uh, as the Chi Alpha director in Russia. And Jake, if you're ever around Jake, you just can't, you can't get around the fact that this man is passionate about discipleship. And so I don't think it's possible to be too passionate about it. And so I want us to dive into this this summer. Discipleship has just been on my heart, that we would, we would learn how to do it better, that we would grow in it, that we would understand it more fully. And so we're going to be looking at discipleship in the scripture through three different uh, incredible discipleship relationships. And so tonight, we're going to start by looking at this amazing event that took place in the disciples' lives. I'm referring to the disciples of Jesus. Jesus had hand-selected a group of men that were going to implement the plan of world salvation. You know, no small task. He had hand-selected these men, though they were not necessarily qualified in the world's eyes. Jesus saw that they were exactly what he needed. And in, this, in their lives with Jesus, they experienced a lot of incredible, miraculous events. They saw Jesus walk on water. They fed a crowd of 5,000 with just a few loaves and fishes. They watched men who were blind receive their sight in a moment. So they, it was a wild ride hanging out with Jesus, <laughs> and is still to this day. Those of you that are following Jesus know that it didn't stop with those 12, right? But one of the most amazing events, one of the most cataclysmic events in the disciples' lives was when Jesus took a few of them up on a mountain, didn't tell them the plan like normal. You ever read the gospel? It's funny, Jesus doesn't ever tell them what's going on. They're always kept out of the loop. And, and then they're, they get up on this mountain, and suddenly, suddenly, Jesus begins to glow, okay? His face begins to shine. His clothes are brighter and whiter than anything could be laundered, it says in the scriptures. And he... It's just so powerful, the light emanating from Jesus in that moment, that the disciples actually, are, they, they fall asleep. <laughs> Basically, it's like God puts them to rest so that they don't just get blown away, you know. It's, it's like plugging, a, plugging a, you know, a small electronic appliance into uh, a, a, an outlet that has too many volts, you know, just going to blow it up. So, that, so they're, they're in the presence of God so powerfully. And what's amazing is that suddenly... There are two other men that are notable figures from the Old Testament that show up, and they have fellowship with Jesus. They, they begin talking to Jesus. So we read in this passage, it's actually in Luke. If we can go to the next slide. It's in Luke chapter 9 that we're going to read this particular account. It says, now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he, Jesus, took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered. And his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, 
which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they're talking about his death. This is a moment, I don't know about you guys, but I would have liked to be with the three rather than the nine that got left behind. <laughs> like I want to be, be with Peter, James, and John. I want to be picked by Jesus to go up on the mountain and see his glory. Okay, I, I don't want to be left down in the valley with everybody else. I want to know, how do, how do I get in the inner circle? Did you know that God, God actually has an inner circle? It's interesting. You know, we know and we understand that God doesn't pick favorites like, like a, a playground bully. You know, he's not just like, oh, I just like you for no reason. He has reasons. But he does have, and we see this in Scripture, he does have an inner circle. Peter, James, and John are with Jesus more than any other of the disciples. And I don't know about you, but I want to figure out how did they get there? How did they get into that inner circle? Because I want to be in the inner circle with Jesus. I want to be in that fellowship. Why were Elijah and Moses there specifically? We'll get into that in a moment. But why, how did they get into that? I'll give you a secret. Okay, I'll let you in on the secret. Here's how. Here's how you get in the inner circle. Are you hungry? That one qualification, another way of saying it is, are you desperate? Are you hungry? Do you want it? Do you want Jesus so badly in your life? You will do anything to be with him. That's it. That's the qualification. We see this in, in Peter's life. He's quick to obey. J Jesus is walking on water. Peter says, Lord, if that's you, command me and I'll get out there too on the water with you. He's quick to do what Jesus says. He, he immediately obeys. He's quick to repent when he fails. He, he's, he, he's constantly just, he's jumping out of the boat, running to Jesus after his biggest failure. You know, he's a man who has this insatiable hunger for Jesus. These three men had that in common. And that was how they were led into the inner circle. Now, another thing that is interesting about disciples is that disciples are chosen. The men that Jesus surrounded himself with were chosen. I mentioned that. That's a very important and vital thing for us to understand regarding discipleship. I don't know about any of you. I, I'm assuming in your story, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're following Jesus tonight, you were picked by God. You didn't volunteer. <laughs> like God intervened in your life when you weren't expecting it. God came in your life when you were not looking for him. In fact, some of you may have this story. This is mine. I didn't want God to intervene in my life, and he intervened in my life. So God's army is a, a conscription army. It's, it's, it's a draft. <laughs> There's no, it's not a volunteer army. I, didn't, I, I rarely meet anyone that says, yeah, I, I signed up for this. No, it was the Holy Spirit just came in my life like a bulldozer and just wrecked everything and I couldn't go back to the old life. So I just, now I'm following Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm in this thing for better or for worse. I'm just, here I am. And I think that's true of a lot of our testimonies. You know, I met the outpost guys when they first came here to CSU, here in the LSC. Uh, just down the hall, in the first floor, I was sitting on a bench going about my business, having no intention that day of encountering another ministry. I didn't want to be involved with a Christian group. But the, here these guys came up to me they looked like a fraternity. I was skeptical at first. I was like, are you guys frat guys? Janik, those of you that uh, know Janik, had long hair. He, he, he was 24, I think, at the time. He looked like a frat guy still. Okay, so I was, I was like, no, I'm not into that. I don't want that. And they were like, no, we're Christians. I'm like, 
That's even worse. <laughs> That's how I felt at the time. But they, they wrote me in <laughs> with steaks. Okay, they said, do you like eating steaks? That was the opening line. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and they said, well, let's, let's have some steaks. <laughs> and so I, almost against my will, I gave my number. I was like, this is weird, but sure, I'll, I'll give you my number. They called me, and we started a friendship that progressed into a relationship with Jesus. That's how Jesus reached me. He just, he came in my life when I wasn't expecting it, I wasn't looking for it, and I didn't want it. And that's, that's true of all of us that are disciples. We're chosen by God. And we're going to look at a story of a man who was chosen by God. And we're going to look at a discipleship relationship that was so powerful, it changed the destiny of a nation. You know, we're looking at discipleship through this lens, transfigured, how it transforms our lives, how it transforms our community, how it transforms our nation and the world around us. Discipleship is that powerful. Now let's go back before Jesus, a long time before Jesus, to the beginning of the nation of Israel. You find their story in the beginning of your Bible. The first five books of the Bible really talk about and, and really elaborate the, the birth of this nation called Israel. This people that God chooses, again, he chose them to be his own and to be his means and his channel of reaching the world. He actually called them to reach the entire world. This little podunk nation that honestly, if you, if you know anything about the history of Israel, they had nothing going for them. They were not the coolest, most technologically advanced people group at that time. Egypt you know, if God wanted to find a, a group of people that were advanced and savvy and had it going on, he would have picked Egypt. He would have picked, you know, one of the great nations of that day. But th instead, God picks this, this nobody nation with nothing going for them, and he makes them his own people. Okay? And when he's made them his own people, what he does is they're, they're slaves to start out with. <laughs> like they're enslaved in Egypt, and he says, okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to free you from your oppression. They have experienced 400 years of one of the cruelest regimes of slavery of that day. 400 years, generation after generation after generation, had their backs bent in straw and mud as they were whipped and served their Egyptian masters. Okay? God supernaturally, sovereignly intervenes in their lives without them expecting it, brings them out of Egypt Brings them through the Red Sea. It's, it's a supernatural, amazing event that takes place. You know, we believe in the outposts. That's a literal event that took place. That's not metaphorical. Like, that actually happened. God took the Red Sea, and he split it. And they walked through on dry land. Now, it has implications for us today that I'm going to get into. But really, you need to understand, they were brought out by this miraculous intervention by God. And they were brought to the Jordan River. And if you know anything about geography, you know that the Jordan River is not a huge river, but it is a river which runs north-south along the edge of what was going to be the promised land for the nation of Israel. You see, God had promised, he had promised Abraham, the father of Israel, I'm going to make a nation out of you, I'm going to give that nation a land, and I will bless the nations of the world through you. He, he makes this three-part promise to Abraham. Abraham doesn't own a foot of ground in that land. He is barren. <laughs> His wife is barren and way past the age of childbearing. 
And so he has nothing going for him. He's not blessing any nations, but God makes this lavish promise to Abraham, and God always fulfills his word. That's the controversy that has always been had with the Lord. Will he come through or not? Will God deliver on his promise or not? For Abraham, we see now on this side of history, yes, God has delivered. God has absolutely made good on his promise. But at that time, there was doubt in the Israelites' minds, unfortunately. And so they stood on the banks of the Jordan River, and they were going to cross in to receive the promised land. They had, again, they had just been delivered by God supernaturally. They're going to cross in, and guess what happens? They send some men to go spy out the land and give a report back to them. The men bring back a report and say, there are giants there, literal giants. Like we felt like grasshoppers. In our own minds, compared to these men, we saw fortresses. We saw walled cities. There's no way we're taking this this land. And the people, the entire nation at that time, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people, potentially over a million people, lost heart in God. And they said, we're not going to enter in. We're not going. And God then had to go for plan B. You see, plan B was... Now this people that had rebelled against him, they, they turned their hearts against God. It, it was a rebellion issue. It, was, it wasn't just a lack of faith. It was, it was a stubbornness to not believe in God. It, they refused to believe in this God who had delivered them so amazingly from Egypt. They lost sight of that just, just a few months later. And they said, no, we're not going to enter in. So God judges that people. And they wander in the wilderness outside the promised land for 40 years. Until that generation dies. And then their children are given the second chance. So this is a situation we find ourselves in. The children of of the the generation that didn't enter in, God's going to give them a second opportunity. How many of you know that God does not judge you based on what your parents have done? God does not hold you accountable for your parents' sins. The the, The mistakes and the failures of the past generation. In the church, God does not hold us. You know, you are the new generation of the church. He does not hold us responsible for the failures of our forefathers that have gone before us. He gives every generation a new start, a new chance. And so he gives, he's giving this new generation a chance to enter in. But what's it going to take to get these people in? How in the world are they going to enter in? If their parents didn't make it, how are they possibly going to make it? What's it going to take? I believe it took discipleship. Discipleship was the answer to the Israelites' dilemma. How were they going to go in and inherit the promised land? There had to be uh, basically a a passing on of leadership. Moses, their great leader, was going to die and not going to go with them. So they had this huge problem. What are they going to do without a leader? How are they going to enter in? How are they going to overcome the failure of the previous generation? When no one has entered in the promised land before them, how are they going to do what's never been done before? Okay. It's going to be done through a chosen man. God, whenever he's faced with a dilemma, always chooses a man or chooses a woman. And that chosen person is the one who delivers. That chosen person is the one who ends up leading the people of God into the promises of God. That chosen person is called Joshua. Okay, Joshua was going to be the leader of the Israelites into the promised land. And so I want to look tonight... There are three ways that Moses discipled Joshua to be the man that God could choose 
to bring the Israelites into the promised land. And we're going to look at how that has radical implication for us tonight. This story, it says in Scripture that the Old Testament, really all of Scripture is given to us for our edification. It's given to us as examples so that we may learn from it and, and discover spiritually how to live our lives. So there's great spiritual import to be had here tonight in this story. Joshua, it, 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 you have to understand a couple things about him. This is really, this is really amazing. Okay. Moses changes Joshua's name. That wasn't his given name. His given name was Hosea. Hosea in Hebrew means salvation. Joshua is actually the same Hebrew name as Jesus. Moses changes Hosea's name to Joshua for no apparent reason. When you're reading the scriptures, you're reading their, the account. You just see suddenly it says Moses changed his name. No other commentary given why that happened. Just he, he decided to change it. I believe it's not a coincidence. We were meant to see in Joshua a prefigure of Jesus Christ. There's something about Joshua that, that is very, very close to who Jesus is. There's something about the character that this man had and the things that this man experienced that reveal Christ to us in a very unique way. You see, Moses was given the law of God. How many of you have seen the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt? Anybody seen those movies? Yes. So you know, or if you've read the account in your Bible, you know that Moses, you know, he goes up on the mountain and he receives the tablets where God writes the Ten Commandments. And he brings that down from the mountain and he delivers that to the people of Israel. So Moses is associated with the law. The law of God is not bad, as scripture says. It's not evil. It's not this, it's not this wicked thing that's meant to, to tear us down or keep us from living, you know, a happy, fun-filled life. Nor is it something that is going to rob us of grace. The law is just simply there because God, the people are so removed from God, God says, look, if you want to have a relationship with me, this is how we're going to do it. It's a description of how a relationship will look with God. But it's just a description. It's never a motivation. The law of God is never a motivation to do or to serve or to love God. It's just a description of what it looks like to love him. Okay? So the law in and of itself cannot lead us into the promises of God. The law, if you're serving God legally, what that means is you're, you're doing it uh, based on your own works, on your own effort. You're doing it like, if I do this, this, and this, then God will give me this, this, and this. Or then God will see me as his son or his daughter. Then God will ha give me his favor if I live up to this standard. But that's, that's, a, that's a wrong motive. You see, we love and we serve God because of how valuable he is. So Moses represents the law. He represents the fact that the law could not bring the Israelites into the promised land. I just couldn't. Can't do it. It was never designed to. Okay? Nothing wrong with the law, but the law was not ever meant to be a motive for us. Does that make sense? Okay, that's very important that we grasp that. So what that meant was Moses' ministry to the Israelites was maintenance. Like he was just trying to maintain the, he was trying to make sure the boat stayed afloat. Okay, because the Israelites kept rebelling and backsliding against God and judgment kept breaking out. And Moses, on more than one occasion, his prayer life saved a nation of people from sudden and swift destruction. Okay, that, that was his ministry though. It was like, man, There'd be one problem after another. Moses is running around. I just imagine him putting out fire after fire after fire. And that's how he lived his life. 
It's really, it's really, it's not, it's not a, a pretty picture of ministry. And in fact, it's not the kind of ministry I want, nor do I want it for any of you. I don't want to just be maintaining my walk with God, just, you know, making sure that I, I, I keep afloat and tread water. See, God has a picture for your walk with him that looks more like Joshua than it does Moses. Okay? You start to see where I'm going here. Joshua had a ministry of advance. Joshua was the one who crossed the Jordan and led the Israelites into the foreign land that they were going to inhabit. And that meant conquering the people groups that were there. Conquering and slaying the giants. Tearing down fortified cities. It meant doing the impossible, humanly speaking. Joshua had a ministry that went forward, and advance is the cry of discipleship. That is the rallying cry of discipleship. Jesus said, you will do greater things than I to his disciples. You know what they did? Jesus had a ministry that reached Israel. They had a ministry which touched the known world. Those 12 men reached the ends of the earth of, that, of the known world at that time. They, they scattered everywhere. They did greater things than Jesus. They advanced. Discipleship has that heart in it. Advance. Go forward. We're not just maintaining the status quo. At CSU, we don't just want our group to be a fun club where it's, it's just, you know, just a small percentage of campus which is knowing about Christ. Our heart cry and outpost is advance more, more, more. We want to reach this whole campus. We're not satisfied until the mission is accomplished. That's the kind of ministry that God has for us and is given to Joshua. Now, the first thing that Moses does with Joshua, or not the first thing, actually. Let me backtrack there. One of the first important things that Moses does with Joshua is Moses disciples Joshua to fight using the presence of God. Moses disciples Joshua to fight using the presence of God. And there's this really interesting story. The Israelites have not entered the promised land yet, but they've got to take care of some really bad dudes, some really evil people. Okay, sometimes, this is, this is reality, sometimes a group of people become so wicked and so depraved that they are beyond the point of redemption. And th this was the Amalekites. They, they were this nasty people that were so depraved, they were offering their children in sacrifices in fire, their babies, literally, they were offering them to their gods to perform sexual rituals, basically free of charge. I mean, th these people were utterly, utterly wicked. I mean, it was just as debased as people get. What happens when cancer enters a body? If a cancer is spreading and it's unstoppable and it's, it's marching and advancing on your body, you're going to cut off a limb to save the whole, right? And so in this instance, God is, is uh, it's, it's the necessary surgical responsibility of God to remove his people, okay? They've just reached that point. God doesn't want it. God doesn't, he's not happy about it, but God is going to do it. He's going to do what it takes to save the whole, right? He's, he wants to redeem the whole world. God always has his heart for the world. So they're going to take care of these bad dudes. Well, they go to war with Amalekite, the Amalekite people, and Joshua is chosen as the general. We don't know why. Scripture doesn't say why Joshua was the, was the man to be chosen, we can assume he probably knew how to handle a sword, and he was probably a good leader, okay? So he's chosen to go out to battle, but this really interesting thing happens. Moses stands on a hill, and he raises his rod in the air, and as long as the rod is in the air, the battle is in favor of the Israelites. 
But as soon as Moses lets down that rod, the battle goes against the Israelites. It's in favor of the Amalekites. What a weird, bizarre thing, right? <laughs> like, how in the world does that work? But it's meant to, to, to help us understand this very vital spiritual principle, which we must live out today, which is that they were not just fighting with swords that day. They were fighting with the presence of God. And as, as Joshua was fighting, when the battle was fierce, he probably couldn't see what was going on behind him. But when, when the battle had a lull, he could look behind him. And if he looked at the hill, what he would have seen from a distance was a man with his arm raised, both arms raised, with a, with a, with a rod across. And that man would have looked a lot like a man thousands of years later who on the hill on Golgotha also had his arms raised and stretched out. But unlike Moses, who got tired and had to lower his arms, Christ's arms remained outstretched. Why? Because his arms were not held up by Aaron and her, his friends. His arms were held to the cross by nails. <laughs> and hit the battle never was lacking for the people of God. When Christ was on the cross, it was victory for us. Okay? So that's the principle that was being taught there to Joshua, is that you are going to have to fight your battles in this world with the presence of God. How many of you have learned or are learning how to do that? Are you being discipled to do that? Do you understand what I mean by that? Let me give you an example from my life. When I was in Russia, I spent, I spent two years in Russia um, in Krasnodar with our, our student ministry that we started there years ago, five years ago, six years ago now, whatever it was. And I was there with Nate and Lindsay Banky and another girl, Lauren, who had also graduated, and myself. So four of us were in Russia starting a student ministry. There wasn't any kind of campus ministry. It wasn't like CSU. There weren't, you know, student organizations. There weren't any other Christian groups there present on campus. The church in Krasnodar was so small, I could count it on one hand how many church buildings there were in that entire city of a million people. Okay. Just very, very small. The, the number of believing Christians in that city in Russia is, is honestly insignificant. And we were there on that campus doing something that really had not been done quite to that extent before. And I had some friends that I had made while I was there, in particular one guy named Dima. Dima was an atheist. We met because he grew up learning English in school, and I, and I was an English speaker. And I was an American in Krasnodar, Russia, of all places, so he was very intrigued to, like, get to know me. It was weird to meet an American. Why in the world were you here? That's why everyone, everyone would always ask us that question. Why are you here? Dima was intrigued, but then his curiosity grew into a real friendship. Him and I became really close. We'd spend a lot of time together. Well, I would go out in the mornings, and God had called me specifically to pray at 6 a.m. And to get out of my dorm, I lived on campus. And th it's, what's weird about the, the campus is, is when you live in a dorm, your dorm is locked at 11 p.m. and the doors don't open until 6 a.m. the next morning. Like, there's no in or out. And that's Russia. <laughs> you just, you don't get in or out. <laughs> One time we got back late. <laughs> One time we got back late. This is my, my roommate Jordan, who happened to be an American from CSU, also a Christian, who helped me with my smug group. We had never met till we, till we met in Russia. Jordan and I and a couple other guys got back to our dorm late. And so our, we happened to live on the second story. And there was an awning, a metal awning. And we um, were able to climb that awning and break in through our window to get into our dorm. <laughs> so we had a place to sleep that night. That's, that was life living in a dorm in Russia. 
Now, I would go out in the morning at 6 when no, one, no other students were walking around at that point. But there were guards. Every, every dormitory had a guard that was on full-time duty. And these guards would sit outside or they would sit close in the doorway and they would watch. Well, I would go out on campus and I would prayer walk the campus. And what I would do with Dima's dorm, I, I just felt led to walk around his dorm in circles. And I literally walked around it with my arms in the air, praising God, speaking in tongues out loud. Well, I was like, man, I'm weird enough as it is. I don't even care. <laughs> like, they think I'm, I'm totally wacko being an American here. And they don't even understand my English. So what's it matter if I speak in a foreign language? I don't understand. <laughs> so I, I went around literally. That's, that's how I went. I'd circle his campus. And I'm sure every guard saw me morning after morning doing that. And I, I, I was doing, what, what I was doing is I was fighting with the presence of God. Because every morning I did that, I, I'm telling you, I felt the presence of God more strongly than I had ever experienced in my Christian walk to that point. Like, it was just a flood. I felt power every minute I was out there. And I would pray specifically. I'd say, God, raise up a witness in this dorm. It's dormitory number four. In dormitory number four, raise up a witness who will tell the gospel and preach the gospel in Russian. And guess what? By the end of that year, Dima gave his life to, to Christ, and Dima lived in dormitory number four. And that next fall, Dima was witnessing to his floor about Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, that's, that's what it looks It might sound strange. God's going to lead you to do some bizarre things. Are you ready to do it? You see, Joshua learned this lesson. When he entered the promised land, the first battle that the Israelites had was against Jericho. Jericho was a walled fortress. It, the entire city was walled. Massive walls. Okay. They, how were they going to take this on? You know what they didn't do? They didn't sit down and think, what's the, what's the weakness of the walls? You know, can we find a weakness in the structure to maybe exploit, you know, like Helm's Deep or something? You know, we're going to throw some explosives over here and get in this thing. They, no, they didn't, they didn't strategize like that. You know what they did? They followed the commandment of God to the T. And God had them do this crazy thing. They walked around the wall for seven days. The entire army, led by the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God. And the presence of God would go before them, carried by the Levites, the priests. And they would walk around. And for six days, they did that in silence. They didn't say anything. And then at the seventh day, at the last lap, finally they had completed it. They were commanded to, to give a shout and to blow trumpets. And when they gave a shout, the walls of Jericho literally fell down. Okay, now it may sound strange and bizarre to our ears today, especially if we're unaccustomed to spiritual truth. But the thing is, you've got to understand that you cannot fight these battles that you have in your life naturally. It's not going to cut it. You've got to learn and be discipled and to disciple others how to, how to fight with and using the presence of God. Now, Moses and Joshua didn't just stop there. Joshua was also discipled to seek the presence of God. And I want to read a really interesting passage. Uh, Moses, this is what has happened. So the Israelites have sinned. Okay, I mentioned how Moses saved their butts multiple times. This was the first time, and it was horrible. They had just gotten saved through the Red Sea, and they committed gross, blasphemous idolatry. They worshipped a golden calf that they made and said, this is the Lord. Like they called that Yahweh. They said, this is the Lord our God who brought us out knowing that wasn't the case, and they had an orgy. Okay, so that's, that's, that's where they're at. That's, that's how bad things got that quickly. And I want to just give a side note, just a side note here. The miraculous 
can bring you in the kingdom and often does. But you cannot rely on the miraculous for your walk with Jesus. Okay? If you're relying on a miracle that happened in your life two or three years ago, that's not going to cut it. You've got to know Jesus. You've got to know him. Okay? The miracles are going to lead you to him. And that was the intention of the Red Sea. It was meant to lead the people of God to God. But you've got to know Christ. You've got to walk with him. These people stopped walking with Jesus that quickly. And so they, they're in gross sin. And God says, look, I'm, I'm so, I'm so, I cannot believe these people, what they would do. It hurt God's heart so bad. God says, I don't even want to go with them now into the promised land. What does Moses do? Moses has the spiritual insight to know this. He goes outside the camp. And he sets up a tent to pray to God and meet with God. You see, whenever God begins to do something, like a revival, or, 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 or move in a, in a huge, dramatic, powerful way in our lives, it's never through the organized thing. You see, the camp represents the organized way of doing things. The status quo. It represents the way things have always been. Moses went outside the camp to meet with God. That's hugely important for us. Because when you're going to pursue the presence of God, you're going to have to go to where God is. And, and this is why God was outside the camp. The people of God, his own chosen people, who he just redeemed, had told him basically, get out there. We don't want you. They had rejected him in making their idol. They had cast off God, and they said, God, we don't want you. And that's why God was outside the camp. There's this crazy verse in Revelation where it says, Jesus is speaking to the church. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to, to be with him. Why is Jesus outside the church? He's, he's locked out of the church. It's baffling. Why, why is he outside the church knocking on his own church? But yet again, history will show us that the people of God that reject him, leave him outside. But here's the thing. The people that want Jesus, the people that seek after his presence, they're going to be willing to go outside the camp to find him. And we find that although Moses was alone in doing so, he was not alone. For Joshua was close behind him. Joshua followed Moses outside the camp. And here's the verse. This is amazing. It says, thus the Lord used to, spoke, he used to speak to Moses face to face. Just as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses returned to the camp, because he had responsibility to lead the people. He had to go back in the camp. His servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. You see, here's what's different between Joshua and Moses. And again, Moses had this responsibility, but Joshua never left the tent. He was so enamored with the presence of God, he never left that. He was never willing to leave God's presence. He was willing to go outside the camp. What does that mean for you tonight? Your camp is that thing which prevents you from being in the presence of God. For some of you tonight, your camp is your family. You may have grown up in a nominal Christian home where it's just tradition to follow God. And for you to seek the presence of God means going outside of your family's way of doing things. I've been and I've walked with guys who, who have parents that they're, they're questionably following Jesus. And yet their, their, their son is getting on fire for God. And he's saying, look, I can't look to my dad anymore for spiritual advice. Because I'm actually, and to say this humbly, I'm, I'm beyond him. 
Like, my dad's not really walking with Jesus, but I want to know Jesus. So I'm not going to just get locked in with the way my family always does things. I'm willing to go outside that. For some of you, your camp tonight is the culture that surrounds us. The culture, the Christian culture that surrounds you. Which may say, this is permissible. You can do this. That's okay. But it's preventing you from experiencing and and being in the presence of God. You're going to have to be willing to go outside that camp. The camp for you might be your plans. You know, really, your plans might actually be the status quo, the way things have always been. And God is saying, look, I'm leading you outside the camp. I'm leading you outside your plans. You've got to go outside what you've planned for your life so that you can be with me and my plan. Sometimes that's, that's what it takes. We've got to have this desperation, once again, that hunger to be willing to go outside the camp. Here's a test of leadership. Those of you that are aspiring to leadership in the kingdom of God, here's, here's a test. Will you do the right thing even when no one else is doing it? I've been there. It is hard. It is really hard. But you've got to have this conviction in your heart. You've got to have, and God, let us be a people. Let outposts be a people that are willing to do the right thing when the entire culture around us is going the complete opposite direction. When everyone around you is going the opposite way and saying, you know, sleeping with your boyfriend, your girlfriend's okay, we're going to say, no, it's not because Jesus is not okay with it. And I'm, so, I'm just so drawn to Jesus, I've got to have him. I've got to know him. I've got to be with him. I'm not going that way anymore. Do you understand what I'm saying? And you've got to be like, you've got to be like Joshua who wouldn't leave the tent. You know, there was a, a church that my parents went to in Montana. My parents currently live in Montana, Missoula, Montana. And they grew up going to this church, or they went to church in college called Clark, Clark Fork City Church. Years ago, I don't know at what point, I heard this story. Clark Fork City Church in Missoula, Montana experienced revival in that church. This is what happened. The presence of God was so manifest and so powerfully there in that building for a season of time that youth kids, you know, teenagers, would beg their parents to let them sleep over in the church. There wasn't a pizza party. There wasn't a a lock-in in in the traditional youth group sense. There was none of that going on. It was just, we are so desperate for the presence of God. I don't want to sleep in my bed tonight because the presence of God is so much better. I want us as the outposts to be that kind of people. Lord, lock us in. Let us just dwell in the presence of God. I don't want to go anywhere else. Do you ever hear Jesus whispering to you when you spend time with him, don't go? Do you ever hear Jesus say that? Don't go then. Don't get up. Stay there. That's what I'm talking about. We've got to seek the presence of the Lord and be discipled to do that. Finally, Joshua was discipled to follow the presence of the Lord. This, guys, this, this is crazy, okay? I, this, is, this is some revelation that this is fire, okay? I'm just going to say that. This is, this is crazy, so get ready, get ready. This is amazing. I'm just, I, I can't stop freaking out about it. I've been freaking out about it. I literally was excited last night. I couldn't go to bed because I was so excited to share this with you guys today. Okay, so Joshua's disciple to follow the presence of God. Here's what God does. When, when Moses is going out to that tent to meet with God, and God is saying, look, I don't even know if I can go with these people because I might just break out and destroy them. <laughs> literally, that's what God says. <laughs> there's, this, there's some funny interactions between God and the Lord in retrospect. I'm sure it wasn't funny at the time. But it's funny today because God will be like, Man, I don't want these people. And Moses is like, I don't want these people either. <laughs> Literally, they have this kind of interaction with one another. 
But Moses is meeting with God, and he's interceding. He's saying, God, spare these people. Well, this is what Moses does. He says, God, look, if you don't go to the promised land with us, we're not going. We're not going to have the blessings of the promise that you have for us without you. You see, that's what it looks like to follow the presence. God's got to be leading the way. God, I'm not going to go where you're not going with me. Okay? And that principle is so, so important in why the Israelites were able to finally enter the promised land. Now I have to explain what this means for us today. Remember, the ark of the Lord represents the presence of God. The ark was this, it was this structure that had to be carried, which contained the law of God, those tablets that God wrote on. It represented the presence of God. That was the dwelling place of God. That's where, that's where God was in a real sense in the midst of Israel. It was where the ark of the covenant was, the covenant, the promise that God had with those people. And the Jordan River represents death. It represents a type of death. The promised land represents the Christian walk. Okay, don't get confused here. The promised land does not represent heaven. Because I don't know about you guys, but I've never read about heaven having some battles and giants and, and some things we've got to conquer. <laughs> okay, heaven's not like that. That's actually a, a depiction of the Christian walk is the promised land. Promised land is when the fighting really begins. It's, isn't that interesting? When you really start walking with Jesus, that's when you actually start fighting. Like I said, you get conscripted in this army. You're actually going to battle. You, I didn't start fighting for people's souls until I was a Christian. I got put in this war, and I suddenly realized what was at stake, eternity. And so I started fighting for people's lives. I am seeking the promises of God. I'm living in them. That's, a, that's the Christian walk. Here's a promise that God has for you, Christians. That you will not be bound by sin anymore. I want to speak to that specifically tonight. If you have sin in your life, habitual sin, God has promised to deliver you from that so that you will not walk in that anymore. I literally can say tonight without pride or vanity, I don't abide in sin anymore. I don't walk in sin daily. It's not a thing in my life anymore. And I want you all to to enter in the promised land, the promise of sinlessness here and now. Not when you get to heaven, not someday, here and now. The tasting and knowing and abiding in the freedom that God has for those. He doesn't want you to be in the wilderness wandering in guilt the rest of your Christian days. He doesn't want you to be in disappointment and discouragement day after day. He doesn't want you to get your hopes up only to be crushed by failure and and sin over and over and over again. That's not the life that God has for you. It's not living in the wilderness. God has a promised life for you to enter into tonight. Okay, that's what I'm after tonight. So I want to set that up. That's, that's the stakes here. Now, what happens is, is Moses is going to die. He's left his servant Joshua in charge. Do you know how that happens? Moses tells God, look, God, you've got to put somebody in charge because th- these people are going to be like sheep without a shepherd. Sound familiar? Sounds just like Jesus. Jesus had the same heart. I don't want to leave these people shepherdless. So God answers that prayer. He says, okay, okay, Moses, I agree. we got to pick somebody. Let's go with Joshua. God actually chooses Joshua. Moses doesn't. 
God picks Joshua, and it's for this time. See, when you read the book of Joshua, it's this incredible story of victory. It's this incredible account of, of Joshua leading the Israelites in battle after battle where they win. They don't get defeated. They don't, they don't backslide during that time. They, they win. They have victory. They defeat everything. It's meant to depict the Christian walk. They, they defeat sin. They defeat sin. That's, that's what it's meant to be. Okay? Now, that's, that's what Joshua does. So why is he ready to do that? He follows the presence of God. And here's what God tells Joshua. He says, okay, look, tell the people this. When, in the morning when we get up to, I think I have the scripture verse, Zach. They command the people saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests, the Levites bearing it, because they, they, they carry it on, on their shoulders, on poles, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. Okay, what, what's going on here? Basically, this is going to take place. The Ark of the Covenant, held by the, held by the Levites, is going to get into that river. See, they've got to cross the Jordan. They've got to cross death to get to life. That's a, that's, a, that's a principle of Christianity. It's 101. Death leads to life. Our, our death and a, our union and our death with Christ's death leads to life. So they've got to get across the Jordan. They've got to get through death. It says the Jordan had actually filled its banks. It's actually at flood time during the harvest. It, the scripture notes that so that we can draw attention to the fact that this was not an easy thing to cross. What happens is the Levites are the first to go in and they get their feet wet. They go in. As they, as they get their feet wet and they enter into the river with the, with the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God, this is what happens. The water piles up ahead, upstream. And the rest of the Israelites, the rest of the men of, of, of the army, enter in on dry ground. They cross in, and every single one enters the promised land. It's this amazing story. What is going on there? You see, Jesus entered into death on our behalf. Okay? When he went to die for us, it was like the ark of the Lord going before us. Jesus had to go first. And there was a man who didn't catch this principle. His name was Peter. If you know the story of Peter at all, you know this. He, he got ahead of himself, and he said, Jesus, I would die for you. On the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed, Peter made this boast. Even if all these other disciples betray you, I won't. I would die for you. What Peter was missing here was this very essential thing. He could have learned this from reading Joshua. That God has to go before you. You've got to follow the presence of the Lord. You can't get ahead of it. See, when Peter got close to the sound of the river, he didn't even get in the bank. He wasn't even getting wet yet. When he heard the sound of the river, he betrayed Jesus with cursing and swearing. Okay? When, he, when death just might have been a possibility, he immediately he, he, he fled. He, he totally wussed out. Okay? He misunderstood this thing, that Jesus had to enter into death first. And there's this incredible verse, John 13, 3, where Jesus says to Peter, where I am going, you cannot follow, but you will follow after. That's the principle we're talking about here. Jesus is saying to Peter, look, you're going to die. You're going to die with me and for me, but it's going to be after me. Why? Because when Jesus entered into death, up until that point in time, 
death was still the ugliest, nastiest reality for the human race. It was still the most gross entity in the universe. It was the thing which was the final separation. It was the thing which was utterly abhorrent to everything that is in us and in our design. It represented everything cruel and wicked and wrong with this world. That's what death was. There was nothing glorious about death. Nothing at all. So when Jesus entered into death, when his feet got wet, it was when the banks of the Jordan were at their fullest. It's when death was at its costliest, when it was at its worst, when it, when it was just the darkest and, and, and the most terrifying thing in the world. Jesus went first into that because Jesus understands this. Get this. If you are discipling people, you need to understand this. Never ask someone to do something you won't do first. If you're not willing to do what you're asking others to do as they're walking with God with you, do not ask them to do it. Okay? Jesus, like the greatest leader that he is, greatest leader in the entire world, went first into death when it was at its worst. And then, because of that, we now can cross into the promised land on dry ground. This is what it means to, to walk in on dry ground. There's still a death that happens in your life. There's still a dying to your old self. But it's like walking on dry ground. It's so much easier comparatively to wading into the Jordan River when it's at its flood stage. Does that make sense? Your, your death, your, your, your um, what's the word I'm going for here? Your unification with Jesus in his death. That's what I'm looking for. Your unification with Jesus in his death is so possible. It's made so tangible because of his death. Okay? Because Jesus died and rose again, death is never the same. Death is never, ever going to be what it was before that moment. Before Jesus, it was utterly impossible. After Jesus, it is the means by which we will enter into the promises of God. And every single one of us have been extended that promise. Every single one. Just like the, all of Israel entered in. My heart is that all of you would enter into the promised life. The true walk with Jesus. If we are going to stand on the Mount of Transfiguration today and see our Savior glorified in our time on this campus, it will be through discipleship. And this is why. Discipleship is the only way to produce leaders who follow the presence of the Lord. Do you get that? When we are discipling leaders, we're discipling leaders to follow. To follow. That's so opposite of the way we commonly are told leadership is. Leadership is getting to do what you want and telling other people how to do it. Leadership is getting to be your own boss. You know, I, a lot of people say, I want to be my own boss one day. That's not necessarily a bad desire, but that's, that's the heart of leadership today. I want to be in charge. I think my ways are better than everyone else's. I want to be the one calling the shots. I don't want to be told what to do. But in discipleship, you're being discipled to follow and so this is my challenge to you tonight. For some tonight, that means seeking God's presence outside the camp and discipling others to go with you. Are you willing to leave your camp to go where he is? For others, it means following. Have you realized tonight that leadership which doesn't require you to be a follower is a lie? Okay. Are you following God? Are you following as a disciple? See, Joshua didn't just say, I'm following Jesus or I'm following God. He followed Moses, though Moses was flawed. He still stuck near Moses, okay, with all of Moses' warts. 
and his failings, his personal deficits, Joshua still stuck with Moses. And I want to challenge us tonight to be a people that stick with one another. Don't just use the cop out, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm being discipled by Jesus. I don't, I don't need the community. I don't need to be walking with anyone here. I, I would challenge that strongly tonight, that you do. That if you really understand discipleship, you're going to be discipled by someone in flesh and blood. And Jesus. That's how Jesus is going to do it. Because he wants you to be a follower. You understand? That's how you follow the presence of the Lord, by being a follower of one another. Okay, that's my challenge tonight. Are you, are you following one another? Are you on the heels of the one God has put in your life to lead you? Finally, if you haven't entered into the promised land or the authentic Christian life, have you allowed the ark of God to go before you? Have you let Jesus go first? When you see that Jesus has bef- gone before you, no giant, get this, no giant on the other side of the river could ever intimidate you. Nothing that's, that's in the way, no, no formidable, formidable foe, foe, excuse me, no obstacle which could come against you in your walk with God will ever eclipse what Jesus did on the cross. When you look at Jesus on the cross going and plunging himself there first and foremost and taking the brunt of the worst of it, you can see the victory on the other side. Every victory that Israelites had coming for them in the promised land was, was done and taken care of that day they crossed the Jordan River. When they crossed on dry ground, they finally did what their parents had failed to do. When they finally entered in the promises of God, they trusted God enough to go. It's all right. It's an old computer. It survived much worse than that. We have kids. Trust me. So, <laughs> um, but when, you, when you've gone, when you're willing to go into the promised land, because you see that Jesus has gone before you. No thing in this world could ever separate you from his presence ever again. Okay. Uh, worship team, if I could have you come back up. We're going to go into a time of worship here to end tonight. And, and I want you just to contemplate those things I, I was mentioning. Again, for some of you, are you willing to go outside the camp? Are you willing to go outside of the status quo? Are you willing to live a life that's abnormal, that maybe a lonelier path, but you will never be alone. <laughs> For those of you that are not following tonight, I want to encourage you to follow, to get close with the person God's put in your life to disciple you. you know, we have small group leaders here tonight. We have people that God's put in your life this summer to disciple you. Are you going to spend time with them or not? Are you going to make them a priority or not? You've got to get close to them. You've got to learn how to follow. And finally, if you've never entered in, into the authentic Christian lock, if, you, if you're not living in victory, if your life looks more like wandering in a desert than enjoying the fruit of the promises of God, will you enter in tonight by letting Jesus go ahead of you? Because you're afraid of death. You're afraid to cross that Jordan River, but once you see it's dry ground, because he stood in the midst of it, you're going to be willing to go there. Okay?